It's showtime. Don't say it, please. Don't say it. No, I have to say it, Mitch. Showtime. Showtime. It's showtime, everybody. Showtime. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Showtime Movie Podcast. I'm Show, as always, and thank you for listening. This is episode 29 now, so we're really chugging right along in terms of episodes. I have some housekeeping stuff to discuss. We'll get to it at the end of the at the end of the uh, episode, as we always do. Some more Tiff news. Tiff is coming. Tiff is only a few weeks away. I'm so excited. I can't wait. I know maybe it's a bit nerdy of me to be excited about a big movie festival. Because, you know, as, as we all know, a lot of the movies shown at TIFF are the hmm, indie variety. I mean, there are some big time movies at, at, at TIFF. They're called uh, gala presentations, special presentations, whatever, right? But I am very excited. But I have some housekeeping stuff about TIFF. We'll get to that at the end of the episode. But I feel as though we're in the period of the summer now where not a lot happens. Maybe that's why I'm getting so excited about TIFF, right? But regardless, it's a bit unfortunate. I kind of feel like... Because movies kind of get left by the wayside at this point in time of year, and I, and I can't imagine this is a stretch of summer where the big bucks are being made. I mean, I know it's not. I don't know why I said imagine, I guess, figure of speech, I suppose. But yeah, it's a slow period for sure. And and even though it is a slow period, even though it is somewhat slow, we have two amazing movies in the docket today, right? Now, I said this before, that I've gotten somewhat away from theming the movies together because... Frankly, it's not always possible due to the scheduled release of films into theaters. So I've been kind of just going with what I've seen in theaters in a given week or two. And, you know, all the advice I've been given about podcasts is that, you know, don't force it. Let it move around organically. And I thought that was a pretty organic thing. I kind of just did stop talking about it, right? And uh, Until now, I suppose. I mentioned it here and there, I suppose. But regardless, what I can, though, I will absolutely try and string movies together. And I almost feel as though it's never been more appropriate than it is today with these next two films, Crazy Rich Asians and Black Klansmen. And these movies, of course, are linked by the way of race relations, right? They both tackle racism in their own way, the issue of representation and how, you know, white communities, how white people truly see minorities in different kinds of ethnic groups in both America and around the world at large, right? So... I'm very excited to talk about both of these movies. I actually have an interview with someone that I did earlier this week about Crazy Rich Asians, but we'll get to that in a sec because I want to start with Black Klansmen because I feel as though it's a little heavier and I'd like to end on a more positive note with Crazy Rich Asians. And that doesn't mean that Black Klansmen is not as good as Crazy Rich Asians, nor does it mean that Crazy Rich Asians is any less, at least I feel, impactful than Black Klansmen, right? They're both fantastic movies. I would watch both of them again in a heartbeat. But Black Klansmen specifically is a very sobering film. I've kind of gotten into one-word reviews of films recently, like thrilling for Mission Impossible Fallout, right? But for Black Klansmen, it's definitely the word sobering. It's funny at times for sure, and there are plenty of dramatic moments, but I'll be damned if it's not one of the most gripping movies I have seen all year. So let's get right to it. Without further ado, the review for Black Klansmen. Teacher. 
Black Klansman, Spike Lee's latest offering, is one of the most interesting, heavy, profound movies I've seen in some time. Now, now just to get it out of the way, the plot outline is very simple. A rookie black cop, who's played by John David Washington, who is awesome in HBO's Ballers, he joins the police department in Colorado Springs, begins an investigation into the KKK over the phone, and when they want to meet, they continue the investigation by using one of the white police officers who is played by Adam Driver to meet the white supremacists in person. Now, that's pretty much it, right? I mean, of course, things escalate as the movie goes along and the two leads, you know, respond in kind, I'd say. But ultimately, that is the basic plot without any spoilers, right? It's a pretty taut examination of race relations in America. And there's a lot of commentary within the movie about how America would never elect a white supremacist into the White House, nation's highest office. And that grim humor, of course, it kind of elicits a lot of sad, muted chuckles from the audience because we all know, of course, that U.S. President Donald Trump is not only a white supremacist, but has been endorsed by Nazis and the KKK, including former KKK leader David Duke, who in this movie is actually played by Topher Grace, funnily enough. But uh, I don't know. It's all... It's all pretty intense, and I'd be surprised if this movie didn't garner a Best Picture nomination. It might not win, but it's the kind of movie that stokes discussion, that causes people to think, and combined with the unfortunate but timely rise of very heavy racism, or maybe rise is a, is a bad word because racism has never really gone away, but maybe it's being paid more attention to now thanks to social media and the internet. I don't know, but it's not that racism has ever gone away, but because it's so clearly back in our you know, front view. It's it's we're we're seeing it all the time. Black Klansman really feels like a movie of our time, right? It even kind of takes a shot at Hollywood itself because the movie actually starts with a scene from Gone with the Wind, a film that is an American institution. And the scene kind of slowly plays out. It zooms out until you can see the Confederate flag waving proudly in the foreground. And it really struck me then that this is one of the most famous films, perhaps ever. One of the highest grossing movies ever. And there's the Confederate flag. You can't go back and remove it from the film, but how much discussion is there really about that aspect of Hollywood in those days now, right? And I, I think for the scariest thing about this movie is that a lot of this is so real. I'm not trying to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but there are groups of people around North America, and I'm not just limiting it to the States because it is very real here in Canada as well, and to pretend otherwise is just silly, but there are groups of people around North America who have a real hatred for people who are not white, like myself, right? I'm not black, but it is especially targeted against black people, and we see it also against Asian people, Indian people, Middle Eastern people, Latinos, Native Americans, Aboriginals here in Canada. It's it's crazy to me. And while we don't get cross-burnings here in Canada, we only have to look as far back as last year to see the insanity that went down in Charlottesville, where a woman was murdered by a white supremacist. Now, I mentioned that incident specifically because of the films, right? Because the movie ends, as you might imagine, with the two heroes, Adam Driver and John David Washington. They complete their mission only for none of it to ultimately matter at all, right? Because, again, it's just ultimately a drop in the overall uh, ocean of hatred, right? It's a drop in the bucket. Spike Lee made the decision at the end of the film to attach real-life footage of the incident in Charlottesville to the movie, you know, footage of the car plowing into the crowd, footage of the Nazis marching into America with their burning torches, and it's truly frightening. I didn't know what to say at the end of the movie, honestly, and I can't really say that I remember a time when that's happened to me before. It's a very sobering way to end the movie, an uncomfortable way to end, and I think even though it ends on a message of kind of 
I guess, make peace, not war, but in different words. I think it was actually what it was. It was a picture of the some of the memorials left at the woman's, uh, I guess, memorial site, I suppose, right? And so it wasn't quite those words, but it's still, despite that message, it's still a shocking way to end such a movie. And I thought it was an incredible choice and that fact, Spike Lee made a fantastic decision to include it. It's just amazing to see, really, the racism per- people experienced in the past, something I hear a lot of people say doesn't exist in the same way today. And then it's conflated with the really, the very real racism of the present. And it's something, honestly, it's it's quite something to experience. I, I don't know how it is for someone who is white. I can't, I can't say that I've ever had that experience, but I have experienced racism before. And to see that kind of visualized and shown on a major Hollywood production in such a way, because it's so different than Get Out, right? Which showcases racism in a very modern way, because the whole movie takes place in present day. I don't know. It's just, it was very interesting to see. And of course, Jordan Peele, who is the director of Get Out, actually is a producer of this movie, uh, which is kind of interesting to think. So he'll be promoting it, I'm sure, as well. But in terms of the characters of the film, okay, it actually ends with Ron Stallworth, who is John David Washington's character, walking out of the police station. He decides to make an end of it, move on with his life versus staying in a job that doesn't affect real change. But then at the end, he decides to go back in after all. And I liked that because it showed the character of Ron. It showed someone who doesn't give up. And I think it lends a hopeful quality to the movie that maybe we, maybe you and I can all truly affect change if we don't give up. Because that wouldn't that be the worst thing, giving up in the face of racism and, and adversity like that? And I think that's... I think that's the message I choose to take away from it. But of course, there are many messages you can take away from this movie, including, you know, fight the power, right? And I think that's completely valid as well. And I mentioned John David Washington, Adam Driver, Topher Grace. They're all great, no doubt. There's Laura Harrier, who you all might remember from Spider-Man Homecoming. Uh, There's Corey Hawkins, who has been in a number of different movies. I think he was in uh, Straight Outta Compton. He was in that 24 reboot on TV. He plays this young kind of firebrand, right? And he delivers this magnetic speech about black power and black oppression. And I think his speech might be my favorite part of the whole movie, but I don't think it's a stretch to say that the real star of this film is actually Spike Lee himself. He had made such a movie in a pretty long time, it feels, and he's back to doing the provocative films he has always done. I mean, you remember Malcolm X with Denzel Washington, who coincidentally is John David Washington's father, but this movie is just as powerful, albeit in a different way, And it's remarkable to see. I'm so excited to see what he continues to follow up with because for a long time it felt as though Spike Lee was known for more stalking the sidelines of New York Knicks games versus being a filmmaker whose films people wanted to interact with in such a visceral way. And that's not a knock against Spike Lee, right? Because every filmmaker has peaks and valleys. And you guys remember I mentioned the Gone with the Wind part of the film earlier in the review. And I'd also mentioned last week at the end of the podcast, uh, Rembert Brown's piece for Time Magazine. And I was rereading Brown's article after I saw the movie, and it really made me think, not just about the film, but about Spike Lee himself. And I'm just going to read you guys a snippet of this, this awesome piece of journalism, okay? So here goes. Like so many things in the film, the parallels between the 1970s and now are singing. That propagandist's line registers because it's a sentiment that is felt today by so many, even those who aren't outright racists. It's the line I consider as I watch Lee bark loudly about Trump, who he continues to refer to as Agent Orange, being a direct response to having eight years of a black president with an earshot of people who are just trying to enjoy their vacation without having to think about all that. This this brings me to another point, he continues. Let's stop telling lies 
and teaching young people bullshit. The United States of America's foundation is genocide of native people and slavery. At this point, Lee is at his loudest. He laughs every time he brings up something obvious. That's the foundation, the very fiber, he says, standing up on the sidewalk with three men on their boat watching him. No people have been more patriotic than black folks who shouldn't be. A man steps off his boat and and interrupts our conversation. Are the Yankees done now? This is the fourth person to stop Lee during this hour on the beach. One was a white woman who shook his hand and said, I can never wash my hand, prompting him to uncomfortably reply, don't say that, prompting her to uncomfortably say, I'll wash it, good night, even though it was 12.35 p.m. The other two also wanted to talk about sports. People love to talk about to Lee about New York City sports, a state he brought on himself by being a very public fan of his home baseball and basketball teams. These are the moments when the wall Lee has built against the okey-doke shifts enough to be cordial. He entertains what must be a daily conversation with a stranger about the Knicks and the Yankees. Yet in times like this, his guard isn't down, but twice as high, because this is when others get too comfortable as conversations about his work take a backseat to sports. It's a reminder that much of white America is still terrified to engage with the work of Spike Lee, but would love to chat about courtside theatrics. Sticking to sports is one of the easy ways to sprint towards equality without dealing with our history. That's an awesome piece by Rembert Brown. You should go read it if you have not yet. But it's pretty powerful, even more so for me, I think, because I work in sports. And it's all very true. It's it's for all those reasons and more that I feel as though Spike Lee is the star of this film. And it's just so easy to say, oh, it's just another movie. It's just another movie. It's not going to make any real difference. And maybe it doesn't. Maybe it doesn't. But if it educates a few people, if it makes you uncomfortable, I think the movie has done its job, right? It's a powerful picture. It uses humor to disarm you. And then it really comes in for a body blow with the topic of race relations both decades ago and today. So if you haven't seen it, I'll wrap up and just very simply say, go see it as soon as possible because you will be better off for it. Another movie you'll enjoy, I think for different reasons, is Crazy Rich Asians. And it goes after issues of representation, tackles the blend of Asian American culture. And let me say Asian North American to include Canadians as well. And on top of all the race relation ideas, it's also a fantastic, funny, heartwarming movie. I mean, I read all three books and it even surprised me with a few pieces, a few set pieces, I should say, that weren't in any of the three novels, which was really awesome. So let's get to the review of Crazy Rich Asians. This is such a catchy song. Cheryl Kay sings this one, and if you go and listen to it on later on on YouTube or something, it's in actually two different languages if you keep listening to it past this part here. And also features a cast member, Aquafina, who's pretty darn funny in this film. But anyways, uh, Crazy Rich Asians. What a great film, honestly. Like I just mentioned, funny, heartwarming, pure enjoyment. And I think it really shows that diversity in film is wanted, right? People want to see themselves on the screen. And of course, the world is not just comprised of white people. It's comprised of black, Asian, Indian, Latino, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all those people want to see themselves on a major Hollywood picture. Like, I can't even really express how excited I was when I saw Riz Ahmed in Rogue One, right? Because he's brown and I, I want to see a brown guy on the screen, right? So everyone wants that for themselves. Now, 
with regards to Crazy Rich Asians, in this part of the review, I won't spend too much time on the race aspect because you're going to hear from Karen K. Ho, a Canadian writer who is partially based out of New York, and she recently wrote a piece for Time magazine about how Crazy Rich Asians is going to change Hollywood. And it's a, it was a fantastic piece. Please go read it if you can. Buy a copy, support print journalism, and certainly Karen as well. But she and I talked about the idea of what this movie means to so many different people around the world, and that's coming up. But right now... I want to talk about the movie itself. And like I said, just so much fun. In terms of romantic comedies and in terms of the format of the story, right? Crazy Rich Asians is a classic fish-out-of-water story. The mother of the boyfriend hates his girlfriend, doesn't think she's good enough. We've seen that story before, but Crazy Rich Asians does it in a really great way. Constance Wu is fantastic as Rachel. She's believably grounded, but of course hilarious as the economics professor... Henry Golding is the boyfriend, Nick, whose family is, well, I guess, crazy rich, I guess, right? There are some other great turns as well. Aquafina, who I kind of roasted with Ocean's 8, is honestly one of my favorite parts of this film. I loved her exasperated expressions with her dad, who was played, by, who was played to perfection, I would say, by Ken Jeong. And uh, a lot of the rest of the supporting cast, such, such as Gemma Chan, who plays Nick's supermodel cousin Astrid, they're all great and amazingly cast as well. By the way, Gemma Chan's uh, kind of storyline in this movie, it was kind of pared down. And I was a little disappointed because when I read the books, she was my favorite character. By far, Gemma Chan's character, Astrid. Astrid is my favorite character in the novels, and I was really excited to see her character arc in this movie as well. And it was very much pared down, and I was disappointed. And... Let me just say that if you're getting ready to leave this movie, there's actually a mid credit scene, an after credits kind of Marvel-esque teaser in the middle of the credits. And it was and it has all to do with Astrid and her. And clearly they saved a huge part of her storyline for the next movie, which at this point, given how amazingly popular this movie is in terms of box office draw, there's obviously going to be a second one. I believe it's already been greenlit at this point. No one started writing, of course. John Chu, the director is uh, doing something else before he does the next movie. But regardless, Astrid's storyline, Fear Not Show, and other Astrid lovers, it'll be intact for the next movie. But I say all those actors because, let's be real, there's one actor in this movie who's a true star, who is truly the best part of this film, and it's Michelle Yeoh. That woman is awesome. And of course, she was a Bond girl in Tomorrow Never Dies. Remember that awesome part of that movie where she rides backwards with Pierce Brosnan on the motorcycle and then she makes him ride backwards? It's so cool. And of course, she was also one of the stars of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. She's just so awesome as Nick's mother, Eleanor. And you can see the care Eleanor has for her son conflicting with that same son wanting to marry an American. She's easily my favorite individual actor of the movie, although the best scenes with her all are with Constance Wu and their clashes over Nick. Really fine work by the two women. Uh, As for the rest of the movie, there's some really great visual sequences that really kind of pound home the idea of, you know, quote-unquote, crazy rich Asians, right? The idea of living in opulence, for example. Like, when Rachel Rachel meets her friend, Paik Lin, Aquafina's character, she sees the gaudy mansion her family lives in, right? Lined with gold everywhere. And it's all kind of tacky and kind of somewhat gross, right? Kind of the image you would expect from, quote-unquote, new rich people, right? But Nick's family is old money. And so when Rachel and Picklin head up to the family estate for the party, it's apparent just how much more rich they are, right? It's understated, right? They have, But they have personal guards. They have butlers. Hundreds of people are there. It's so extravagant, but it's also very elegant, like something you might have seen in Pride and Prejudice. And... 
there's some other awesome sequences as well, right? Like when Nick and Rachel first arrive in Nick's native Singapore for the first time, when the when the uh, where the movie mostly takes place, they're greeted by friends Colin and Araminta, and they're the characters for whom Nick is going. Nick is going to Singapore to uh, attend his best friend's wedding, Colin, and he brings Rachel along to meet his family. So they get greeted at the airport, and they go get food at a local market. And honestly, my mouth was watering. It looked so devilishly good. I probably shouldn't have even started talking about it because I'm hungry and now I'm even more hungry. So thanks for that, John Chu. Thanks. But um, I will say that the rest of the movies, maybe not the rest, but a lot of the movies talking points do surround the idea of race and representation and what it all means to non-white people everywhere, certainly, but of course, Asian people, actors, your everyday person who goes to the movie theater and they see people like them, like I mentioned at the beginning of the review, up on a big Hollywood screen. And if the week-to-week drop, because the movie came out about a week ago now, and now we're seeing the uh, box office results for the second week of Crazy Rich Asians, and it's dropped by a ridiculously low number. Most movies drop by... 40% or 60% or more than that, right? And this movie has dropped by less than that. It's dropped by less than Black Panther dropped week to week, which is crazy impressive considering Black Panther made $700 million domestically. That is nuts. So clearly Crazy Rich Asians is extremely important and people want this kind of movie. So about all of that, about race, about representation, about what it means to minorities, here is my conversation with author Karen K. Ho. Happy to be joined now by Karen K. Ho, writer for publications including The Globe and Mail, Toronto Life, CBC Life, and of course, most recently, Time. As Karen, you wrote an amazing long-form article titled, Crazy Rich Asians is Gonna Change Hollywood, and it's about time. And Karen, I loved your piece, so thank you very much for joining me today to discuss both it and the movie. Thanks so much for having me. So Karen... Crazy Rich Asians is, of course, a really fun and engaging movie. And on top of that is a huge step forward in terms of representation, in terms of setting the bar for more stories like this to be told going forward, don't you think? I think it is. Uh, It's really sad that it took this long um, and that there are a lot of people who need to be in the right places and have the right kind of experience for them to get this opportunity. But the most important thing is now there's a huge discussion about what kinds of stories need to be told following this movie and not just sequel and, you know, a wide variety of faces and economic backgrounds and, you know, education levels and topics that are really not centered around money at all. I think that's the way that everybody sees it going forward. And now that everybody's having that conversation, it means that the work really needs to be done and those stories need to be greenlit. And I think we've already kind of seen a little bit of action on that front, at least in the, you know, in the week since the movie has come out. We've, I think I saw writer Lillian Yu, who's a writer for NBC's Powerless, her rom-com Singles Day got picked up by New Lines. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I, I mean, there are lots of projects. I think Juvie, uh, which is the company with Viola Davis and her husband, right. you know, they've also greenlit that um, that series in regards to about uh, mixed race Asians in, from the island of Hawaii and what is their different experience of being four different types of mixed race women, Asian women, and how is that going to be different? You know, I think those kinds of stories, that's the breadth and diversity within the Asian diaspora. Um, both, you know, um, 
in Asia itself and then in places like Canada. And I'm really interested to see what stories will be greenlit going forward and what are the opportunities uh, around the world where people are saying this is the right time, there's clearly demand, and that means um, there's a real business case going forward to invest in these stories. And one of the things, and you kind of touched on it there, that I really enjoyed about Crazy Rich Asians is that seemingly for the first time in a major Hollywood production, it treated different groups of people within, you know, a certain ethnicity differently, right? Like we got Asian Americans via Rachel's character or Singaporean characters via Eleanor. And I guess it's just so easy to discount or overlook that, it seems. I think if you import movies from, say, India or China or Hong Kong, I mean, that kind of diversity was already sort of, um, you take it for granted. And uh, But unless you know where to get those movies or unless you grow up with that kind of media diet, it's really easy to grow up in Canada and the United States and feel like, where is this stuff? Uh, where do I get it? And, you know, um, I'm just used to seeing Friends reruns for the same, you know, 12 hours on TBS again. And I think the thing that's really interesting is just we forget, even within like the Indian diaspora or the Chinese diaspora, how many differences there are in terms of, like I said, education, accents, body types, interests, you know, the fact that you could just, it, it, some of those characters in Crazy Rich Asians on their own would be awful, but the fact that they're a part of a huge ensemble means that they, they are not carrying the, the torch of being the Asian character alone. And I think that's really radical in a really sad kind of way um, that, you know, white actors and actresses really never have to have that burden right now. And I think you, I saw that you had uh, retweeted an article from the New York Times, and the author wrote that we live in a, quote, an econo economy of narrative scarcity. And he went on to mention that, you know, a measure of equality is the right to be mediocre and rewarded for it, as, of course, as we both know, many so-so movies or straight-up awful movies with uh, white people are are get that kind of automatically, right? So I just wanted to get your thoughts on that as well. You know, when I talked to Constance Wu, she quoted that that author. His name is Viet Nguyen, and he is a Pulitzer Prize winner for fiction. And he talks about a lot about narrative scarcity versus narrative plenitude. And this idea that within literature, within uh, movies and, and television, and even in terms of the voices that we get to see as public intellectuals, there is such a limited window for who gets to be allowed those opportunities that um, there's a huge amount of responsibility and weight um, and an impossible burden placed upon them that I think is really unfair in a way that, you know, um, we've seen Canadian intellectuals say, you know, they know that as white people, they only have to represent themselves. But if one brown person is on a panel on a show like um, a, a national news channel, they have to represent everyone who's not white. And that's really unfair. And I think it's really great to see that um, there's a discussion about how as more and more people get these opportunities, that burden of responsibility will slowly lessen. But it's going to take real work and concerted efforts in order to change that. Otherwise, we're going to be in the same situation even five years from now. Exactly. And I think you kind of touched on it a little earlier as well. I think it's important to have these things, I, I, I've always felt at least, uh, normalized. Like, for example, when I went to go see 
crazy rich Asians myself. I went with a friend of mine. She is Asian Canadian. And a few of her younger sisters who are in their early teens, they tagged along with us. And we were chatting after the movie and I was chatting with her sisters and they were so excited to see these Asian actors like Constance Wu, Michelle Yeoh, Gemma Chan, Aquafina, etc. And it just got me thinking, it's probably an understatement almost to say how important this is for you know, younger generations to normalize seeing people like themselves on a screen as they get older. And I think the success of this film and certainly other properties as well, you know, have the potential to make that happen, I think, for younger Asian Canadians, Asian Americans all around the world. I think it's really important and deeply underestimated, especially by Hollywood executives, how much people are hungry to see themselves represented in stories and and the limited windows in which um, Asians, both Southeast and uh, East Asians, you know, really have to, they struggle to, to you know, even, you know, I, I profiled B.D. Wong and the number of times he's played a doctor in right. a lab coat, you know, across his career. That's, you know, you don't see the breadth of possibilities in, in what you're able to do and how you're able to be represented on screen, just like how we get the trope of brown people are only terrorists or cab drivers or, you know, all these stereotypes and a movie in which has its own flaws, but allows people to be the hero, to be clumsy and to have all the cliches in a romantic comedy, including um, a makeover scene is just, you know, everybody wants that escape right now. Summer, it's a weird time in summer. And, um, and you're right. I think it's really going to be interesting to see this younger generation and how that changes their view of themselves. Um, whereas a lot of us had to wait much later in life to get that um, experience on screen. And I think we kind of experienced that to a similar degree, in a sense, when Black Panther came out earlier this this year, right? And I mean, I'm not Asian. My family is South American. And I think if you go back a little farther, my great, great, great grandparents are from India. But regardless, as a minority, I still feel a sense of connection to movies like Crazy Rich Asians, like Black Panther, like Get Out, and certainly other films as well. And Karen, I think the success of these movies has shown that I'm certainly not alone in feeling that way. I mean, look at, I think it's also not just, it's across different genres, you know, romantic comedies, action films, family films like Coco. I mean, Coco has made enormous amounts of money. And, um, you know, a lot of people have visited Mexico. A lot of people have an affinity for Mexican culture. But to have that experience of a film explaining the relationship, the importance of family in Mexican families and what you will do in order to protect your family, I think is so important. And then also it was beautiful, right? It was very respectful in presenting culture and educating people about aspects of Mexican culture around the world. And that will have a legacy far beyond when it was in theaters. And I think that's really going to be uh, something important is as there is more representation in film and television, there will be an understanding that these are records of uh, cultures that never got to have this opportunity. And people will use them in s some ways um, to educate people about um, whether it be Mexican culture, whether it be Chinese culture and many other cultures that didn't get this kind of opportunity to be represented on screen. I kind of wanted to zero in a little bit here on Crazy Rich Asians specifically. Uh, one of the scenes in the movie towards the end uh, with the Mahjong scene with between Rachel and Eleanor, and I, I fully admit, I freely admit I'm not a Mahjong expert, but 
you know, I read all three books and I, I binged the three novels by Kevin Kwan over, I want to say, three or four days after work. And I loved that scene at the end, A, because it's one of the few scenes in the movie that's not in the novel whatsoever, probably because of how it's, you know, visually intensive and versus being described in a, in a novel format written via the written word. But I wanted to get your opinion on that scene in terms of Rachel having the winning piece, throwing it into the pile, Eleanor winning and that whole that whole shebang as it was, because it was really awesome to watch. And I feel like it conveyed so much with relatively little dialogue. It was, um, it was just like the first scene for me. It's something that until you see it on screen, you don't know what you've been missing for a really long time. You know, when Michelle Yeoh talks about her family and her wealth in Cantonese, you know, in the opening scene, I had never expected that. Um, I, I had seen, I had read the books as well. And, you know, I had seen the aspects of Cantonese dialogue in the books and I did not just expect it to be the first thing that you get when you start watching the movie. And, you know, I have grown up with hearing the sound of those tiles and my mother playing Mahjong all the time, you know, in video games and at tables with relatives. And to see that be the climactic, you know, confrontation between Rachel and Eleanor was a huge relief. It was it was saying this is a key aspect of our culture, a place where, of course, people gather together and sort of talk to each other. But also, you know, there's a level of competition and cooperation that's necessary to the game and then also it was just a great way of summarizing so many different things there were so many layers to that story and that moment just like with black panther there was a level of thought to that scene that i knew that people would be breaking it down both immediately and thinking about it for a really long time and i was like wow what a gift what a great example of what happens when you have diversity which is just you have many more tools on and how to tell a story. And I was like, if this is not a great example of a, like why you need more narrative plenitude, then I don't know what else there is. Because I don't know if someone who hadn't grown up with the game would be able to talk about why that was so important or why that would make such a great climactic scene. And I think it was just so visually striking. You know, all the pieces were were bright green it was so well lit everything about it just it was so much fun to watch and then it had so much meaning behind everything i i think i i think that might have been my personal favorite part of the movie in general but i don't know about you did you have a would you say that was your favorite part or did you have a different one as as well i really liked um the makeover scene i think it's just like it's such a classic trope not every girl grows up wanting to have a makeover, but it is really funny that that is a classic part of every romantic comedy that if you just have a makeover, you know, a lot of your (laughs) problems will be solved, you know, with great hair and makeup and clothes. And, you know, having to, having to sort of empathize or relate to characters like Anne Hathaway in Princess Diaries or all the other um, non-Asian women in film and to finally have someone like Constance, who I was like, wow, I, I look much more like her and I can put myself in her shoes much more easily, is just like a simple joy that I didn't realize um, was missing. And even though I had seen romantic comedies from Hong Kong and, you know, I just think it, it was another experience that I didn't know I was missing until I had it. Yeah, no, I think the Crazy Rich Asians has... I mean, it's so easy to say, okay, it's another Hollywood rom-com, but 
The truth is it's a lot more than that, and I think that's what you and I have been talking about, but it's nice to see people who perhaps don't really think about that or don't have to think about that on a general basis come to terms with that and are confronted by it or you know are get to see it firsthand, and I think that's a really interesting aspect of this movie. I'm talking with Karen Cahoe, writer for publications including The Globe and Mail, Toronto Life, CBC Life. And Karen, before I let you go, uh, I wanted to ask you one last thing. And this actually has nothing to do with Crazy Rich Asians. I actually recently read your piece about journalism school when you were in, an undergrad and I believe also when you were in Columbia, I believe, right? Yep. And I I also went to, I did a post-grad. I, I, I admit I went to Centennial College here in Toronto for my post-grad. Didn't go to New York for that one. But I appreciated the words nonetheless, especially also having written for the varsity when I was an undergrad. And I do talk to some, you know, some journalism students back at Centennial. I'm going again in a few weeks to give them some advice about working in sports journalism specifically. But I wanted to get your opinion on if you had to pick one of the pieces of advice from your piece on uh, on your blog, I wanted to just maybe if you could pick just one to, that you would give to students who are just starting out in the journalism industry. Not to take you super off guard here, but I know we didn't really discuss that before, but uh, I always feel like giving advice to younger journalists is often so much more beneficial than even they, I think, realize. I really wish someone had told me much more about how important it is to plan. Um, you know, I only discovered Google Calendar in graduate school at the age of 29. Oh, man, me too. I also went to, I went to Centennial actually as part of the joint program with the University of Toronto Scarborough. Oh, cool. And so, so um, my professors were from there. And I think it was, uh, planning is the, a really important thing of, and preparation is really important. And and also because it summarizes so many different things, you know, in terms of just anticipating what you need even before um, and being ready for things like your phone possibly dying or, you know, making sure that you have the supplies that you need to record or capture a moment. And also doing things like making sure that you, I even write in my notebook sometimes, like listen, like plan to listen much more than you talk or and not just focus on the questions that you have prepared. But also I think the unfortunate thing is when you are especially a woman or a minority in the news industry in Canada and the United States, planning is often the way that you just beat the system and the odds against um, people like us succeeding in the industry because the numbers are still very bad in 2018. And I found that often I wasn't necessarily uh, the most talented. And, you know, I, I had very low grades when I finished at U of T, but planning how I was going to get better and how I was going to improve my work very methodically was how I was able to get to where I am right now. And, and I really think that it just pays dividends so much more. It, and also you have to do things really with intention and focus, like making sure that you get enough sleep or eat properly, or uh, you allocate the right amount of time to, edit and prep your work or apply for jobs and things like that. And I think you can't always anticipate everything that's going to come your way, but planning really helps you adjust um, when you're uh, in a, especially when you're first starting your career. And I really wish someone had told me about that when I first started, um, because I think my life would have been very different if I hadn't done that. But um, I'm really grateful for, uh, having gone to Centennial, I think that uh, I had great professors there. 
and I still think about a lot of their advice in the work that I do now. Yeah, the staff at Centennial are are definitely really great. I'm gonna I will definitely pass along your words to them when I when I go, if that's okay with you. Sure. Yeah, awesome. Well, Karen, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today on the podcast, and uh, I look forward to reading the rest of your work going forward. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Karen for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk to me. I kind of threw her a curveball at the end there with the journalism question, but she's a pro. She took it in stride, and I look forward to talking to her again and, of course, reading her future pieces, and you guys should too. And I do hope you all go see these movies because they're both just so good. They're so different but also not different, right? They both tackle issues of race but in very different ways. It's just so hard to explain these race issues sometimes because you're conditioned by racism itself to think that as a minority, you don't matter, right? That whiteness is the ideal, that you can't get any better because the white people there are already in place. And the truth is, they're not any better or worse. If you're a minority, you're just as good as anyone else, skin color aside. But even so, those movies are important in terms of raising these issues, right? Black Klansmen in terms of showing how racism has not truly changed all that much from the 70s to today. It's still an issue that's so pervasive in North America and elsewhere, Europe, everywhere else. And Crazy Rich Asians in showing that it's important to have diverse narratives in Hollywood because not only are they entertaining, but they also make oodles and oodles of money. So studios are clearly going to start taking note after Black Panther and Crazy Rich Asians have had so much success. And maybe we'll even see Crazy Rich Asians get, get a bit of an Oscar, some Oscar attention after the uh, best popular Oscar change, right? We still don't know what the criteria are, but if it is in terms of cultural impact and money and so on, I got to imagine Black Panther and Crazy Rich Asians will be nominated for that Oscar. I, I would hope at least, right? But anyways... I kind of teased the TIFF stuff at the beginning of the movie, or at the beginning of the movie, beginning of the episode. So I'm pleased to say now I will be officially going to TIFF in a few weeks as a member of the press. I'll be going with a three-day pass, so not for the whole festival, certainly. But it's a good start, and I hope to build on it in the years to come. But I'll be able to see First Man, Widows, The Sisters Brothers, The Lie, and a few others at the press and industry screenings, which is pretty cool. So keep an eye or uh, ear, I guess, out for the bonus episodes of TIFF content because they are a coming. But for now, that is it from me. This has been the Showtime Movie Podcast, episode 29. My name is Show. Thank you for listening in. As always, have a good night. So let me tell you like this. I'm who you're looking for. I'm the whiz. You ain't never seen another like this. There ain't no one to do what I did. There ain't no one to do it like I. I changed the game. I changed your whole life. I'm irreplaceable. That's no lie. Been talking on the grade. I'm so high. Yeah, stamina, hit a quick pose for the camera Why you sitting down, you 